Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 235, Alexander VII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So we've met today's Pope before. He was the nuncio to the treaty negotiations that ended the Thirty Years' War at Westphalia, and later Pope Innocent X's Secretary of State. It's Cardinal Fabio Gigi. He was originally from Siena and born on February 13, 1599. He received you know, a Renaissance education, more than the standard canon lawfare that most popes at this time period received. He was particularly well-read and cultured, and he loved literature and art. When he did complete his canon law degree, he moved to Rome and began a career in the Roman Curia, like many of the popes we've seen before. He rose quickly. He served as the number two to the legate in Ferrara, and then after being ordained a priest and a bishop, he was sent to Malta in a supervisory world. But his big break came in 1639, when he was named the Apostolic Nuncio to Cologne, where he found himself in the middle of two major controversies over the next decade, the beginnings of Jansenism and the political intrigues surrounding the close of the Thirty Years' War. His location in Cologne kept him in close contact with the nunciature in Belgium, where the initial outbreak of Jansenism was located. If you remember from last episode, Jansenism was a heresy which emphasized the limited nature of Christ's salvation, that he did not die for all, or that he did not give sufficient grace to all. Archbishop Chigi helped compose the initial response to Jansenism in 1643, and he found himself greatly influenced by the main opponents of the Jansenists, which were the Jesuits. He had a Jesuit spiritual director and had been formed in seminary by them, and they led the charge against Jansenism in France and Belgium. But as we heard last episode, this initial sprouting of Jansenism is only going to grow from here, and we're going to have to talk more about it in a little bit. But first, we have to enter into the negotiations which surrounded the Peace of Westphalia. We heard a lot about this last time, so I won't go over the details too much, but Chi Yi found himself in a difficult situation throughout the negotiations, and more and more he was ignored by the great powers involved. The Pope's strict rejection of the terms of the peace meant he didn't have much wiggle room to influence the talks, and it left him sidelined. His role was one of trying to support the peace as best he could. He even worked to temper the Pope's condemnation of it after the fact, but he wasn't able to succeed that much. In 1651, the Pope called him back to Rome and named him the Secretary of State for the Vatican, and upon his return in 1652, he was named the Cardinal Priest of Santa Maria del Popolo. As part of his new position, he was appointed to the Commission of Cardinals who examined the Jansenist theology in the early 1650s, and which led to the Bull Cum which condemned five Jansenist principles. Cardinal Chigi was one of the principal movers of the Bull, convincing Pope Innocent X that Jansenism was bad enough to merit a profound condemnation. In January of 1655, Pope Innocent X died, and the conclave that elected his successor began soon afterwards. And this conclave is a good point for me to take some time and mention one of the stranger factors in papal elections over the past couple of papacies, which is the so-called flying squadron of cardinals. That's literally what they called themselves. It was a group of fairly independent and reformed-minded cardinals who didn't want to be connected with one particular faction or country. They were led by Cardinal Dicio Azzolino, a major player in the papal curia, as well as a skilled cryptographer, believe it or not. And the Flying Squadron wanted to end nepotism in the church, and they had enough weight to kind of push around to elect the person that they wanted to elect, or at least to get the compromise candidate that they wanted to elect. So they sought out a candidate who would end nepotism. And it's said that during the conclave, one of the Flying Squadron cardinals, Pietro Ottoboni, said, This time we must seek an honest man. 
Cardinal Adesolino then replied, if you want an honest man, there stands one. And he pointed to Cardinal Fabio Chigi. Still, Cardinal Chigi's election was not in the bag. There were five or so different factions, and while Cardinal Chigi didn't have many enemies, the French were not 100% behind this candidate. Plus, the older cardinals did not like the idea of electing someone so young. He was in his 50s during the conclave. But with some negotiation, and by noting that he was much better than the alternatives, the Flying Squadron got their man elected. He took the name Pope Alexander VII, very particularly pointing out that his inspiration was Pope Alexander III, and not the scandalous Alexander VI. And initially, the new pope didn't disappoint the reformers. His first couple of years in the papacy, he did not appoint any cardinal nephews, and he did not allow his family to come to Rome. But after a year in, he realized that he needed his family to govern effectively. And so in his first consistory, he did name a cardinal nephew, and he was basically as nepotistic as any of the last couple of popes. Now, the first major event of his papacy came in the form of an extraordinary convert from Sweden, Queen Christina of Sweden. Queen Christina was already interested in Catholicism as a young girl and wanted to remain celibate, but she was expected to get married and provide an heir to the Swedish throne. By 1653 or 4, she was planning on abdicating the throne and converting to Catholicism, which is a big deal because in the Thirty Years' War, the previous ruler of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, was one of the major players in the war, one of the major Protestant voices, and so now his successor is thinking about converting to Catholicism. She could have faced death, to be honest, if she had made that public, but she had to keep it underground for now. So all she did was say that she was going to advocate the throne, in part because people didn't want her, but in part because she wanted to convert to Catholicism. She left Sweden and headed to Belgium, and there in Belgium, she secretly but officially converted to Catholicism. Then after writing to Pope Alexander VII, she announced that she had converted and was planning on heading to Rome. Now, the Pope was ecstatic. To have such a huge convert was a triumph for Catholics everywhere. The procession to the Vatican was epic. Every diocese she passed through had a party, and when she finally got into Rome, she arrived at St. Peter's, and the Pope gave her the Sacrament of Confirmation himself and gave her the confirmation name Alexandra after himself to show this bond between the two of them. And Christina became a major social and political force in Rome, and she was close friends with Cardinal Azzolino, the leader of the Flying Squadron of Cardinals. And so she, her influence played quite a role so long as she was in Rome. But her relationship with the Pope was not the same. She had a member of her entourage who she suspected of treachery and executed in a way that seemed a little less than legal, and the shock clearly upset the Pope. So she would be a formidable force in papal politics, but the Pope soured on her fairly quickly. Now, while the Pope had this triumph with Queen Christine of Sweden, he was finding more difficulties with France. The French, especially the young King Louis XIV's prime minister, Cardinal Marazin, did not like Pope Alexander. In fact, when I said earlier that some holdouts had to be convinced to allow Pope Alexander to be elected Pope, it was the French cardinals who were the holdouts. French government tension with the papacy created space for Jansenism to bubble up again. And if you remember from last time, Pope Innocent X had condemned several propositions held by the Jansenists as heresy. Well, now the Jansenist supporters, including the philosopher Blaise Pascal, were saying, we agree with that condemnation because those propositions aren't actually what Jansen said. In fact, you know, you just condemned a straw man of heresy, not what we actually believe. Now, the majority of the French bishops and clergy fought against this new Jansenist position, and the French Academy of the Sorbonne condemned it. The Pope, likewise, put out a new bull, much stricter than that of Innocent X, called Ad Sanctum Beati Petri Sedum in 1656. The majority of the French clergy accepted the bull and added a formula on their own initiative that required all French clergy to profess in order to teach the faith this formula, which directly condemned Jansenism. 
Now, most of the French clergy agreed, but four French bishops sided against the Pope and then also against this formula that the French clergy had come up with, saying that they didn't have the authority to impose such a thing if the Pope himself hadn't done it. So they wrote to the Pope, and in 1665, the Pope sent another bull, Regiminis Apostolici, which implemented an anti-Jansenist formula that everyone would have to sign. Now, the four Jansenist bishops held out. They sent the formula to their people, but accompanied it with a note saying, well, this formula doesn't really condemn what Jansen actually taught. So the Pope responded by requiring that the four bishops be put on trial in France, but the controversy won't end here, and we'll continue talking about it in the future. Now, this whole controversy was about more than just one particular heresy. It was beginning to get tied up with the role of the Pope doctrinally, his infallibility, and the role of the state in directing the church. And we're seeing here, in this conflict, some of the early phases of what we will call Gallicanism. And we're going to be talking about Gallicanism for a lot, so this you really want to know. It's a system in which the King of France, from the word Gaul, which is the, what France used to be called, that's why it's called Gallicanism, the King of France saw himself as more important in directing the church in France than the Pope. And the Pope's actions in the Jansenist controversy, even though he was in the right doctrinally, will provoke some of the more moderate French bishops to perhaps think of distancing themselves from the Pope. Now, this comes about because of the rise in a more absolutist form of monarchy in which the kings and emperors of their time saw themselves as being utterly and completely supreme in their territory. And this was aided in a bit by the uh, Peace of Westphalia, which said something similar. And so if they see themselves as supreme, who is this other guy who's the king of his own country telling me how to run the church in my country? And so we're going to be talking about this for many, many episodes. So keep in mind Gallicanism. Now, with that, we have to comment on a couple other random aspects of Pope Alexander's papacy. The first was construction. Pope Alexander was friends with the great architect and sculptor Bernini, who completed the famous altar of the chair in St. Peter's Basilica during Pope Alexander's papacy. Pope Alexander and Bernini worked on renovating, uh, in quotes, renovating Rome. Rome is still, to this day, a warren of little streets with only a few big streets crisscrossing the entire city. And so they wanted to rework it to make it more grand, more sensible, more grandiose. They built a few more grand avenues, some large squares to make it a more modern European city, more like France and less like some little backwater. And the most obvious of these squares was St. Peter's Square itself. Bernini designed the large colonnade which surrounds the square and makes it such an iconic space. When you picture St. Peter's, you always picture it with this massive arms of colonnade welcoming you into the square. Now, all this construction added to the public debt, which had built up for some time now. And despite Alexander's own personal honesty and no-nonsense administrative ability, he ran up debt like his predecessors. Pope Alexander was also quite the author. He wrote a definitive treatise on the Immaculate Conception, kind of as a theologian. And he also wrote apparently a little bit about the heliocentric theory of astronomy, which we've been talking about a little bit in the past couple episodes. But his friendship with Bernini actually helps accent his personality as well. He had Bernini sculpt a marble skull, which he kept on his desk to remind him of his own death. And it was clear that he was not just an administrator, but a pious man who knew he would be judged by God and not by men. And so he met his judge on May 22, 1667. Most likely he died of kidney stones. And he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. And his funerary monument was sculpted by Bernini. It's particularly reflective of this instinct in the Pope for his uh, remembrance of his own death. The sculpture is pretty famous. You probably have seen it if you've seen um, sculptures of a pope's, pope's tomb. And it features a bronze skeleton holding an hourglass, reminding the kneeling Pope of his death. He was succeeded by Pope Clement IX, and we will talk about him next time. 
Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.